So, hello and welcome to the latest Moses and Methuselah podcast. Uh, with me, Jonathan Davis, and my good friend Peter Silent, the fund manager and uh, man of the world. Peter, we spoke before Christmas, and uh, we were still unsure how the world was going to play out at that point, though you were more positive than I was. Uh, but the new year has started well, it has to be said. There's uh, some very positive mood music in the markets. The stock market is up. Bond yields have come down a little. Uh, and uh, basically, people are feeling more confident this year, I think. How do you read the situation as we kick off this uh, this new year, Peter? Well, first and foremost, Happy New Year, Jonathan. I hope that 2023 will be a good year, better than last year. And it has started with a bang, certainly in the areas that you and I are working. What I found very interesting again, and I'm sure you'll agree, is that as we approach the end of last year, uh, particularly the last two weeks, you could notice on a daily basis how the time horizon of investors and commentators and observers was slashed by one day every day. So that as we approach the end of the new year, there was no question of thinking long term. It was just a question of window dressing your portfolio to try and make you look as good as possible coming to the year end. And then um, all it took was a couple of days of New Year's celebration to change the investor's mind. And if you look at the actual performance of not only the stock markets, but also the bond markets, it's actually been the strongest first few days of January uh, in a long, long time. So that indicates a whole lot of things that were going on in the background. But so far, so good, Jonathan. Indeed, so far, so good. And uh, we're all aware of the old stock market saying that as goes January, so goes the year. That's an old market saying which says that if if January is a good month, a positive month, the stock market, that is uh, tends to be good for the year. I'm not sure how reliable any of these old adages are. I saw some reference saying that uh, that is true 80% of the time. But of course, when you look at it more closely, it doesn't always hold up. But at least it's a it's a good start to the year. And as you say, there seems to be a kind of refresh in the way that people are thinking about the new year, because as you say, they've got past that rather awkward period of uh, finishing a year when professionals had to report big losses to their clients, they polished down some of their uh, some of their finer excuses, and uh, get on with the new year. But you're right, it is positive. Of course, now we have to kind of work on whether or not the the narrative that goes with that is actually logical. Is it uh, convincing? And I think that's perhaps what we should should talk about. But on one note, I would add that, you know, as you know, I take a lot of interest in looking at what we call the technicals of the market are developing. And there's no doubt that there have been some significant moves there as well, which are certainly making me kind of moderate my former view that uh, things are going to get worse before they get better. I think I'm I'm at a point now where I'm having to consider whether, you know, the facts have changed and therefore I have to change my opinion, as uh, as Keynes famously said. And what I mean by that in particular is that uh, a lot of equity markets have broken through their 200-day moving averages, which is an interesting thing. And and some of them are, well, if I can dare mention, the FTSE 100 is almost approaching its all-time high, which is uh, something we've waited a long time for in the, in the UK, <laughs> given all our problems. So what do you think is, is really lying behind this? Is it the fact that uh, People have taken uh, another look at 2023, or are they now looking into 2024 uh, and trying to look through what we all know is going to be, uh, we've had this inflation surge, and it's now it appears to have turned. Uh, the latest inflation data from the UK and the US is certainly uh, showing a little tick down. 
and most people expect that to continue. What do you think the this good mood music is really reflecting, if we can go into that? To me, it's very clear what it's reflecting. And if you think back of the podcasts that we held in the last three, four, five, six months even, what we were always lamenting was the liquidity squeeze that was getting stronger and stronger and more and more critical. As the dollar was grinding higher, bond yields were grinding higher, the atmosphere was appalling, and every bounce in the stock market represented a dead cat bounce where you were absolutely right and I was absolutely wrong. And we did conclude, you and I, that's where we agreed, that so long as the liquidity squeeze persists, the market can't turn convincingly. And what has happened in these last three weeks, okay, you'll say three weeks is not a long time, but equally I agree with you that January could set the turn for the rest of the year. What has happened is extremely important. The dollar rolled over, the bond yields rolled over, uh, expectations for inflation also rolled over, as well as inflation, the inflation numbers. I know that you're going to address the difference between core and non-core, and you're quite right to do so. I'm sure you will. We can discuss that. So you've had a general improvement in the liquidity picture worldwide. The falling dollar helps reliquify the emerging markets, which is very important. And what's happened in the sovereign bond yields as a result of improved inflation numbers is not surprising. But the good news on top of that is what has happened and is still happening in the corporate bond sector. You've had a substantial increase in issuance and you've had a substantial increase in secondary market activity. And you've had a substantial decrease in yield spreads, corporates over sovereigns. And these are all ingredients for that most important pillar, which is liquidity. And I'm glad that our discussions have been vindicated when we were saying that that which needs to happen eventually does happen. And we were thinking about the external value of the dollar, which has now rolled over. So I think if that continues, that background continues, we can expect the worst problems to be behind us. If the bond market turns out also to be a dead cat bounce, then we'll have lots more to talk about in the months ahead. Yes, I'm not so convinced about the bond yields and, and what's going to happen in the bond market. The equity market does look positive, And as you say, all the factors you've mentioned are true. Interesting on the liquidity point, I, I do follow a couple of uh, I don't know what to describe them as, eggheads who track liquidity. And their story is that it's it's actually very complicated what's happening in liquidity. There's a number of different trends going on. But what appears to be the case is that while the central banks continue to talk tough on interest rates, um, they are actually providing more liquidity. And of course, we've also had the other significant factor, uh, which may be because of you know financial stability concerns or who knows what it's about. But the other big factor, of course, is we've had the news out of China, which is that the Chinese government has reversed course, has done a U-turn on its COVID policy and has let you know more people out after locking them up for a long time and restricting their lives in a way that none of us would find acceptable. And they appear to have sort of completely changed course, even though they haven't changed the rhetoric so much. And that's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out, because China is such a big part of the world economy now, that um, if that leads to the kind of surge in consumer spending that we saw after our lockdowns, that will give a big boost to the world economy. 
offset, of course, by the fact that they're saying one or two million, maybe more people will actually die of COVID now that they're out of lockdown. Uh, so that's a sort of mixed picture. Uh, but it does seem that, as you say, the, the stars are becoming aligned for a much better year than we had last year. And then, of course, the question, I guess, the next question will be, which everybody is now asking, well, well, what will the Federal Reserve and what will the other central banks do? They're such important players in this. The Fed is still talking tough and says it wants to keep on raising interest rates. And some of its members are saying they want to go up to Fed funds rate of you know 5% or even more, where others are saying, well, actually, the bond market is saying, well, we just don't believe you effectively. Is, is, would that be how you interpret it? Yes, but apparently the Fed watchers will point out there has been a subtle change in Fed speak. And apparently there are people, eggheads, as you call them, who analyze every word, every breath, every utterance and every syllable pronounced by every single member of a voting committee. And there, there has been a subtle change. I'm referring now to the Fed. I'm not referring to the European Central Bank, let alone to the Bank of Japan or the Bank of England. Because the Bank of Japan, that becomes a lot more complicated, the situation there. And I don't think that the European Central Bank are quite as sophisticated under the current leadership as are the Federal Reserve. So you're quite right to point out that there is quite a lot of hawkishness still coming out. But nonetheless, the expectations have fallen from 75 basis points to 50 basis points, now to 25 basis points. And so not only the, the magnitude of hikes has receded, but also the duration. You know, first they were talking about 2024, and then maybe the beginning of 24, and now maybe the end of this year as being either the date at which they'll pivot or the date at which they will stop raising interest rates, which essentially comes to the same thing. But what I think we would find if we had a mole in the Federal Reserve, I wish we did, uh, is that the Fed must be pretty concerned about this liquidity thing, because what you touched on a minute ago is completely right. They talk tough about quantitative tightening, but they also, behind the scenes, they continue to practice QE, as and when is necessary in whichever pocket of the market that requires it, which is, of course, if you like, the other side of the old Bundesbank coin, they used to do the same thing. They used to lower rates with one hand, but then um, increase minimum capital reserves at the same time. And so we will never really know, at least I won't, how the central banks really, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in these meetings. So, I suppose anything is possible, but I don't think that the Fed would tolerate a UK gilts situation, which we discussed already, from occurring in the biggest bond market in the world. Indeed, that is undoubtedly uh, true. I mean, one of the explanations that I heard, which rather sounds rather convincing to me, is that you know the real target of the, the Fed is not just in the short term, but they're actually trying to kill those longer-term inflation expectations. And that's why the rhetoric is so tough. And obviously, if it turns out that the world is already you know got to a point where they don't need to do any more tightening, then uh, they'll probably be happy with that, as long as they've really squashed those longer-term inflation expectations. Because the worry would be, I guess, the sort of negative story would be that the reason why bond yields are falling is because we are going to go into a recession. You know, the yield curve is still very inverted and so on, and longer-term bond yields lower than shorter-term bond yields. And that is traditionally a, a, one of the precursors of a recession. And therefore, the reason that bond yields might be coming down is because they're actually pricing in a recession, uh, which could be quite a bad one. 
And therefore, what happens beyond that? Inflation will come down in those circumstances, might come down a lot. But it doesn't necessarily mean that inflation has been sort of wrung out of the system, if you like, and that it will come back later. It's not as if somehow, you know, it'll all come back to the perfect Goldilocks scenario again once we're through a recession. As far as I can see, we haven't got decisive evidence about uh, whether there is going to be a recession or how bad it's going to be. I'm pretty sure there will be one, uh, but it could be quite mild. And that seems to be what the bullish folk are saying. Uh, I just uh, wonder, and I rather hope that that is the case, because otherwise we could be in for a, in a, a good year for the bond market, but a good year because uh, the world economy is, is grinding to a, to a halt. Well, that's the old discussion between the Main Street and Wall Street. And um, Wall Street had its pain last year. And it might be that Main Street will suffer the pain this year. And Wall Street's habit is a habit where it anticipates the future. And so you could have share prices rising. Incidentally, I noticed something which you will find as interesting as I did, which is that the big laggards of last year, the, those companies that produced perfectly good business developments and earnings, but whose share prices were absolutely hammered, were all these long duration assets. And they really suffered a huge downturn in their share price, which had nothing to do with the actual fundamentals of their business. That, that I can show you enough evidence on. But these, this year, these long duration assets have had a spectacular rebound just in the first couple of weeks of the year. And so one is sort of moving towards the Main Street, Wall Street, shifting sands. But you see, what you just said would mean that interest rates and bond deals don't really need to go up again because it creates a recession and then the recession kills inflation and so on and so forth. And if you're right, you'd be in a situation where for us investors, bad news is good news. If you're wrong... And there have been some recent statistics, even in the UK, where economic development was better than expected. There were quite a lot of st statistics on Friday last with regard to the Eurozone. If that happens and develops a surprising momentum, then you could really be faced with a situation where the bond market is getting it wrong and it would have to reverse its course because the economies are growing much more than expected, lo and behold, then for us uh, investors, we would be in a potentially difficult situation. That sounds like a definition of stagflation to me, really, if you get into that kind of situation. And that's that's generally not the kind of environment in which you want to be investing. It's not the ideal perfect conditions in which to do that. So where do we go from here? Well, I think that's that's very interesting. I mean, I think the, the dollar is key. It is interesting. I mean, looking at, uh, I wish you know what the experience of your companies, because obviously most, the majority of your portfolio is in companies that are based in the US. Uh, interesting to see that, the you know, according to the charts, at least, you're getting better signals from markets other than the US rather than from the US market itself. The US market itself has been strong, uh, readily concede that. So we're seeing a lot of people saying, well, this is the time finally emerging markets, you know, the dollars coming down, emerging markets are going to have their day in the sun. And who knows, even Europe might actually make a recovery. Uh, Europe's still got a lot of problems, obviously, with the Ukraine war on its doorstep. We haven't talked about that yet. And obviously, some of the economies are, are struggling. Let's just talk about your portfolio, first of all, Peter. You Obviously, you've got these, uh, as you say, quality growth companies, uh, which are global players. 
How have they been performing compared to uh, you know some other markets? In other words, is it a case that we can talk about this being a global recovery, or is it uh, still dominated by the by the U.S. Uh, big cap stocks? Mm, that's not an easy question to answer. I will come back to what I said a minute ago, which is that it's the duration of these businesses which this year have influenced their share prices, just like it was the duration of the businesses which negatively influenced the share prices last year. But the extraordinary thing is that these companies in our portfolio, you're right that most of them are located in the US or um, quoted in the US, but that doesn't really matter because they are worldwide global businesses which have a global outreach all, all across the world, including in the emerging markets. They have produced very good earnings all the way through. Some of them may be less good than expected, but the outlook for these businesses for the next five years and 10 years and 15 years is as strong as it ever was. And I think the market has sensed that by driving up the share prices so sharply in the first three weeks. Obviously, it meant that the short positions were very large for these companies because the narrative was that the bond yields need to go up to sort of four or five percent all across the board, which then didn't didn't happen. I think the emerging markets, you have to differentiate between the commodity producing ones and those that don't produce commodities but are heavily indebted, usually in US dollars. The falling dollar, the turnover of the dollar has helped them enormously. And I think China is a, a huge big question mark. I don't know. Let me put this to you. I don't know if you read recently that the Chinese Communist Party has now introduced a new ruling, a new rule, which is that any companies, whether they are dominated by foreigners or not, the state can unilaterally decide to take what they call the golden share so they can take, um, I don't know the exact percentage, but let's say up to 10%, they just have the right to buy into these companies, and therefore they have a right to influence. So you find that a whole raft of Chinese-based businesses are effectively controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. So I always make a difference between one type of emerging market and another type of emerging market, but those global quality growth businesses that we're invested in, they have their feelers stretched out and they're much better at judging these things uh, certainly than I am. Yes, that's an interesting development, of course. And there's always the risk, as, we, as we've as we seen already, that uh, if the Chinese government decides that uh, some of its entrepreneurs or, or business leaders are getting a, a bit uppity, they're going to uh, clamp down on them. We've seen that happen in a couple of sectors already, obviously. Uh, and that's always a risk. Though I have to say, looking at uh, you know, my specialist area of investment trusts, the Chinese investment trusts have actually sort of taken off. They've really bounced back strongly, I think, on the basis of the COVID policy rather than concerns about the fact that they might get uh, sequestered at some point. But they're up, I think, about uh, 40, 50 percent from their lows. So yeah. they're still 40, 50 percent below their highs. So, you you know, it's one yeah. of these classic situations where the momentum is strong, but actually uh, you're still out of the money if you've been stuck with them for a while. And I think one needs to be cautious about them. I would absolutely agree. One other thing I'd like to throw at you, uh, Peter, just out of interest. We talked about commodities. Uh, obviously, we've seen commodity prices come down quite significantly, and that's encouraging, particularly the oil price coming down is encouraging. 
Uh, and we've seen gas prices come down, obviously, in Europe in the short term. That looks like we'll get through this winter in Europe with the gas. But next year is still a concern if the war is still going on at that point. And meanwhile, of course, gold is doing extraordinarily well. Gold has shot up in the last uh, six months, which is kind of interesting in a way. If if we're right that inflation is coming down, if the market's right that inflation coming down, that looks uh, slightly anomalous the way that gold is performing. Yeah, I, I very much agree with you, especially to people like Moses and Methuselah, who are not just trained, but who observed that gold was the best hedge against inflation, as were real estate prices. And um, we had a huge uptick in inflation in the last couple of years. Gold did nothing. And as soon as inflation and, their, and, and its expectations started to roll over, lo and behold, the gold price takes off. And furthermore, during a time when other commodities, because let's not forget that gold is a commodity, that other commodities are, are also rolling over and going down. So I'm afraid that if you want to have some deep insight into the gold market, uh, followed by some kind of prediction or forecast of the price of gold, I'm afraid you've come to the wrong place, because it's it's really not my speciality by any means. I mean, one explanation, I think, is, well, two possible explanations. I mean, kind of one might be something to do with the fact that Bitcoin has blown up. And there's therefore, you know, people who actually like the idea or thought that they were investing in Bitcoin because it was a store of value, which, of course, it has uh, dramatically failed to be, have gone back to gold as an alternative. That's one of possibility. The second, I think, is, of course, that they may be looking through this next year and thinking about what will happen to real interest rates as opposed to uh, nominal interest rates, because real interest rates are a big factor in what happens to the gold, as does the dollar, of course. And they may be just saying, well, look, this seems to be confirming that we're going to go in a continued period of financial repression, in other words, where uh, inflation is allowed to remain higher than the interest rates that the central banks are setting. And therefore, if real you know, interest rates are coming down again, which they obviously shot up dramatically last year at one point, uh, then that may be an excuse for why gold is performing so well. And that, would, in turn, would be consistent with an idea that actually inflation is is going to come down, but it's not going to be kind of wrung out of the system completely in the in the medium term. That's one plausible, I think, one plausible explanation, but we don't know for sure. Meanwhile, of course, we've got this issue of Ukraine. We haven't talked about the Ukraine war yet, where the reports are, obviously, that the Russians are gearing up for a, a massive offensive in the spring They've conscripted a lot of poor Russians to sign up, and they're being put through their training now, such as it is. <laughs> and of course, that could be a decisive moment. That could change the course of the war in Ukraine, or it could turn out to be rather like uh, the experience in the First World War. It could turn out to be the last shot of the Russians before they give in. That's just a wild card at the moment, isn't it? I think we can't really be sure how that's going to play out. We can be even less sure when we see how hesitant some um, important and big governments are when it comes to helping Ukraine and kitting them out with the necessary tanks and long-range missiles and what have you. I notice that, for example, the Americans are now potentially going to pivot because of the Republicans, the, if you like, more nationalist Republicans, they don't understand why 
the taxpayer should support Ukraine. They don't doesn't it doesn't sink into them. The geopolitical necessity for that to happen doesn't doesn't sink in, not even to the parliamentarians in the US. And then you've got the UK, which is arming Ukraine as if it's going out of fashion. But of course, with the UK, the UK government especially the conservative government, always has an agenda. So I can't really say that I trust the British in their support of Ukraine. They're going to ask for something in return at some stage. Then you've got the Poles, who have been very supportive of Ukraine for very good reasons, because they know exactly what the Russian danger is on their doorstep. And then you've had the Germans, who have been less than completely pathetic, but the German government is very, very weak indeed, especially when it comes to this specific thing, because they argue that they're afraid they don't want to escalate the war and they don't want to provoke Mr. Putin as if the war hadn't already escalated to unbearable levels. And so you've got this weakness right in the middle of Europe, which clearly Putin is going to exploit in many ways. And therefore, we can't really conclude whether this war of attrition is going to continue for another year, or whether certain people like the French president might succeed, I don't think he will succeed, might succeed in getting the Ukrainians to sit down with the Russians and to say, all right, you can keep the lands that you've annexed, but no more than that, or something like that which would be a disaster. So we just don't know. So the, the next question is, will Ukraine fatigue set in to such an extent that the non-Ukrainian factors that influence inflation will come to the fore and that the Ukrainian, the war influence on the prices of raw material will recede into the background and, and not be a daily feature of stock market discussions? Yeah, well, there's a lot of good questions there, Peter, to which, of course, I have none of the answers. What is the case is that the oil price is roughly back to where it was at the start of last year. So we, we've been through a pain barrier there and it's uh, come back down, but it has sort of stabilised. And longer term, I think, you know, we still have this dynamic, which is we are going to need an awful lot of oil and gas for the next 20 years, particularly whatever governments do on uh, the net zero front, on the climate change front, we're going to need an awful lot of oil and gas uh, for the next 20 years. Uh, and the industry is not investing as much as it used to do, partly because a lot of uh, institutions won't back them. Uh, so it seems to me that whether or not the Ukrainian situation is resolved, it seems to me that the uh, unless we have a very bad global recession, in which case we might see the oil price go crashing down again like it did uh, in 2020, oil looks like it's going to be uh, quite strong for some time, in other words. And that seems to be what a lot of uh, investors also are concluding because the price of oil companies and other energy companies is, has been also been quite strong in the in the recent environment, notwithstanding these fears of recession. So it's a very kind of mixed picture. I mean, we always say it's a mixed picture because we don't, none of us knows for certain what's going to happen in the markets. That's the nature of the game. Um, but I mean, I've, my perspective on this is that at this particular point in time, we're in one of those periods when there appear to be lots of alternative paths forward uh, and picking our way through it I mean, last year, I think, was quite, as in retrospect, turned out to be quite easy uh, if you got the sort of main themes right. But this year, I'd have to be honest, I think it's a very uh, kind of dynamic and confusing picture. So I'm uh, I'm wondering um, what you think people should be doing. I can tell you what I'm doing, but I'm, I'm interested in what uh, you think people should be doing in this environment. You must never ask me what I think people should be doing in, this, in my environment, because I would always tell you the same thing in any environment. I know the answer of this, Peter. 
Exactly, exactly, because of the long-term effects and benefits from earning quality growth businesses. But I just want to pick up on something you mentioned, which is interesting. You concentrated on core inflation as influenced by commodities. But I wonder whether we shouldn't just as much concentrate on ex-food and energy inflation, because that's the number which is stuck at a certain level, not coming down as quickly as the rest, and potentially even nudging up a little bit, notching up. I think there we need to look at the tightness of the labor market, at the jobs that need to be created in order to alleviate this tightness on the labor market, but which at the same time is the result of a change of mentality by workers, especially workers of a certain age, let's say in their 50s, who still got savings on their bank accounts. They haven't spent the money that they were given by the governments and who don't have the hunger for going back to work. And that if these people remain outside of the labor force for the duration, then you could have the dreaded wage price spiral and a different mentality towards inflation, a mentality towards inflation by consumers, producers, businesses, employers, you name it, it's it's all across the board. And if that becomes entrenched for too long, then you could have a situation where interest rates just need to go up a lot more. And there are pessimists out there who see that environment. Yes. And by saying that, Peter, you're sounding like a member of the Federal Reserve there by saying that, because that obviously is their concern. And as we mentioned before, looking back in history, you know, the Fed has never started to ease. Well, at least publicly, we've talked about the difference between what it's what it says and what it does, maybe. Um, but they've never started to ease when unemployment was this low, as it is in the States at the moment, because they recognize that that uh, if the labor market remains tight, then it's going to be very difficult to get uh, this core inflation down. And we've seen, particularly in the services sector, which is the, the service price inflation, is the one that has been uh, rising strongly, while the, the one which is more influenced by uh, transitory factors is coming down. So, yeah, I think that is a big question mark and a big concern. And, um, well, I know quite a few people in their 50s who are not working anymore. I mean, they don't have to work anymore. They feel they don't have to work anymore. It may be it will take a bit of inflation for them to realize that actually <laughs> they're, they're getting poorer every year. And uh, it's uh, it, it, they may have to think about that again. Uh, I think that's a very, very important question. And I think that's uh, one we will need to, to track very carefully. And what happens to the, the jobs market? I just personally don't find it particularly credible that inflation will be squeezed out of the system unless we do get an increase in unemployment, unfortunately, and uh, and a slowdown in the economy. So what I would say is it's not a slam dunk. I mean, I haven't completely changed my views from last year. I think we're in still for a quite a tricky period ahead. The other factor we haven't mentioned, which, well, you alluded to it a moment ago, you know, is the fact that this massive debt buildup that we have seen, particularly in the US, you know, where whatever you think about the Biden administration, they have been spending money like there's no tomorrow. And unfortunately, there will be a tomorrow. And uh, if the bond markets have to absorb all that uh, issuance that's going to come on the back of that, I mean, the projections are frightening, really, then that's going to suggest that uh, bond yields are not going to come crashing down to very, very low levels again anytime soon. You've put your finger on my wound because that is exactly where I got it so badly wrong last year when I was arguing all the way up, i.e. bond yields going up, all the way up, I was arguing that the marginal buyer is going to come out and save the day. 
and it didn't happen for most of the year. But it did start to happen at the end of the year. And I think that yields are now at levels where actually they're a lot more attractive, not only because they're a lot higher than they were, but also because they've stopped going up. There's been a certain amount of stability there in the bond market. And so you could argue, and I think I'm beginning to argue again this point, that for all sorts of reasons, not just technical reasons, but also fundamental reasons, I don't necessarily see how inflation with all its ingredients, there are lots of them, as you know, um, that all these ingredients are pointing to rising inflation and therefore rising bond deals in the months to come. Key will be how long this relatively stable period that we're enjoying at the moment, how long that lasts. So I'm sure that next month when we talk again, I'm sure that this subject will be firmly on the agenda. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that you have to distinguish between what might happen to bond yields in the short term and what might happen in the medium term, where I'd be more positive on the short term and less positive on the longer term because of these fundamental problems that are there about the debt and so on. To me, it just feels you're taking a historical sweep. It just feels like we are entering one of these periods where we are going to see uh, higher inflation, sort of embedded inflation for a longer period of time. We're already seeing, you know, some other pointy heads, people talking about, well, maybe the central bank should raise their inflation targets above 2%, go to 3%, and gradually, because of course, it's in their interest to see some of their debt inflated away. So it's going to be interesting how that plays out. But in the short term, yeah, it does look like bonds are now a credible alternative to where they were a year ago when, you know, let's remember the US tenure was at uh, under 2% a year ago. And it's now at uh, 3.5%. So it is still significantly higher. Uh, and even if it goes lower, uh, I wonder how low it's going to go. Yeah, I think it was even under 1% at the beginning of last year. But, but I, I may be wrong. You may be right. I'd like to cover the next time another interesting topic, which you, is difficult to read a lot about. But the central banks, be it the Fed, the ECB, they have lost hundreds of billions the value of the bonds that they hold on their balance sheet has collapsed. And so they have they've made the biggest losses of all. The question we need to discuss next time is, does that matter? Yes, <laughs> that is a fascinating question. And we might also look at that in the context of what's been happening in Japan, which we haven't talked about either, where some very interesting things are happening. They, they actually appear to have got inflation now, and uh, the central bank now doesn't want to recognize that was its objective all along, which is quite interesting. So yeah, lots to talk about next time, maybe next month in February. We'll see, first of all, whether January has continued the way it started. Uh, and secondly, whether some of these issues we've been discussing have become a little bit clearer. So say for me, the outlook is uh, actually rather murky, but I'm having to acknowledge that uh, you know a little bit more money into the risk assets is uh, has been the right thing to do. And I've done a bit of that, uh, I have to say, just to... In case I'm wrong about the, the longer term picture, you know, you can't fight the markets for long. You have to concede. If the story changes, you have to change your positioning as well. So, Peter, that's fascinating. Thank you so much, as always, for a stimulating discussion. We will look forward to the next one. And, uh, well, fingers crossed. Thank you very much. As usual, very interesting. And I say onwards and upwards, Jonathan. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only 
and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.